and then you pull back the curtain and it's like, holy shit, this person's kind of a mess. Um, and everyone is just closing their eyes to it because we got to push, push, push them in terms of performing. Hi, and welcome to episode four of 80% Mental, a podcast all about the psychology of sport performance. In the last episode, Hugh and I were joined by two sports psychologists, Dr. Leah Washington and Dr. Chelsea Day, and by ex-professional athlete Todd Cawthorn. And we had a bit of a competition to decide which athlete should be awarded the title of the mental GOAT. That is, which athlete, mentally speaking, is the greatest of all time. Each of our guests nominated an athlete who they were going to talk about. So Leah Washington nominated gymnast Carrie Strug. Chelsea Day nominated golfer Tiger Woods. Todd Cawthorn nominated tennis player Roger Federer. And Hugh, who was also playing along, nominated, strangely enough, Eric Cantona. At the end of that show, Hugh asked each of our guests to identify one word or one characteristic or a value that summed up the athlete that they'd nominated as the mental goat. Chelsea gave us two words, but we let her off for that. But the question sparked off another conversation about what it actually means to be mentally great. We were recording anyway, so we thought it would make a great episode in itself. And here is the rest of that conversation. So Chelsea, what do we think about this idea of, of boiling down this, uh, this idea of mental greatness into just one word or one characteristic? I think Hugh's point is probably the most impactful one of the whole conversation um, in that if you think about the, the word or in my case, two words that each person picked, then if we went based on that word, then I think that that athlete wins because I think that it shows what lens we're looking at it through. I mean, when I think of graceful, I absolutely think of, I think Todd wins. I think when you think about persistence and, you know, running down a vault runway with shredded, you know, whatever ligaments in your ankle, like that absolutely is, is the pinnacle of persistence. Um, and so I think that that has, I mean, I, I think he was right. Like that's one of the most interesting things that each of our lenses. And I imagine if we dug into our own training and the work that we're doing, you know, probably also speaks to why that's our lens. Um, and so, and as someone who's like a total pacifist, I think that it's easy for me to be like, everybody wins based on the words we chose. Um, but I, I think there's some truth to that, that, you know, from the lens that we're looking at it, I think it, it makes sense that those would be the people we pick and that you could make an argument that each person's right on that because I mean, that's a huge component of it. I do really like the phrase graceful because I think that for a lot of, for really all of our athletes, it is grace under pressure that, that there's a moment where, you know, when everything is, you know, on your shoulders, you know, do you panic? Do you, have a temper tantrum, do you? And that kind of really leads to your point, Chelsea, of this this mental agility or this emotional agility. You know, when I think of, and it's very clear, I think sometimes in 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 tennis where we see people throwing rackets and and shouting at the uh, umpires, and um, it's just so much wasted energy, right? 
that when you are calm under pressure and you do have this grace about you, and I will say that, you know, say what you will about some other incredible tennis players that Roger Federer is the most elegant tennis player that's ever graced the court. I mean, he's, he's just beautiful to watch, you know, on every level. He's a gorgeous and his tennis is beautiful. Um, but I think for each of our athletes, right, that they're, that you can't have these emotional outbursts that you, that those, that will be the, to the detriment of, of all of our athletes, that none of them would be successful without that. Yeah. And I think the, I mean, Leah, I think touched on it earlier when you were talking about how, um, how she went on Saturday night live and, and made fun of herself. And I think, so obviously there's some, there's an, an ability there, a self-awareness there, um, t- but also being able to handle the success. So there, there's something to be said for mentally being able to just, just handle the, the huge amounts of, it's not just pressure in, in your sport, but pressure outside of your sport that gets applied to you. And the more successful you are and the more everyone wants a piece of you and the more sponsors you have, the more pressure that you bring onto yourself. Um, you know, the, the more, uh, you spread yourself and then, the, and then there's the danger that what if you don't perform? What if you have all these, these outs? What if you're attracting all this attention? And what if you're, and then everyone wants, and then all of a sudden you go from, Every, we want you to succeed to we want you to fail. And then 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 there's, you know, I think that's happened to Tiger, hasn't it? I mean, I think when when he went through what he went through, all of a sudden he became sort of public enemy number one. Nobody wanted to see him win anymore. You know, so so being able to handle those outside pressures and what happens to you outside of your sport. And then, like you said, to be able to maintain your consistency and win along with that is, is even a, it's an even bigger sort of obstacle, I think, to, to overcome. Keep using that word. I can't think of another word for obstacle, but yeah, challenge. I mean, I think about that gymnastics team a lot in that, I mean, Dominique Mochiano was 14. She was the youngest. That's crazy. The oldest was 19. And so it was funny because Dominique Dawes um, and I think Amanda Borden were both 19 at the time and they were considered ancient. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to have these kids, uh, you know, in on this stage that I think, and I actually talk a lot about this. Um, I think a lot about this with younger athletes where whether it's figure skating or diving or gymnastics, where you can have an elite athlete who is very young and so we have to be really careful that we don't conflate their sort of capabilities as an athlete with their chronological age that, you know, how much are we expecting of these athletes? And, and, and truly the whole team handled it incredibly well. Like they were enormously well prepared for it. But, you know, when you think about someone in their thirties or in their late twenties, um, with all of this media scrutiny, I think it's a really different, um, it's a whole different ball game when you're 18, you know? And I think for Carrie, when she was able to be like, yeah, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I know I sound ridiculous. Um, takes an enormous amount of self, uh, awareness that I think we sometimes kind of forget, especially when we look at Olympic athletes, 
of like, oh no, they're, they're so young. <laughs> they're so young. Yeah. I mean, four, 14 is a ridiculous age to be competing I mean, they on have that, since, that kind of stage. They've since increased the age for Olympic gymnasts. You have to be 16 now, but um, yeah, 14 is bananas. When I think a lot about that, I mean, my the age group I work with on a day-to-day basis is 17 to 22. And, you know, I work at a university that in the U.S. is one of the highest profile in terms of our athletes. And and so when I think about, you know, gymnastics and diving and, and a lot of these other sports, I immediately think back to my day-to-day work and the fact that these are kids without a fully developed frontal lobe who are mm-hmm. sustaining pressure. And now, to, I mean, even to think about gymnasts now um, and, and, I just found my um, Cabbage Patch doll. It's a 1996 gymnast uh, Cabbage Patch doll that now my kid has because it was such a, a impactful time for me. Um, has anybody else have a Cabbage Patch doll? I don't think so. Right. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where I, I think about now I and we're adding patch. social. Perfect. <laughs> no, that's absolutely. It's totally. Um, but now, now we're adding social media and thinking about a lot of these athletes moving into now where, you know, the kids I'm working with are getting all this backlash and Carrie at her age, even before that was able to go and to, to make fun of herself in a time when people weren't doing that. I think our athletes now are doing a little more of that because they get to control the narrative a little bit with their social media and the, the brand that they're developing and all of that. And so I think that speaks a lot to her age, her brain development and her ability at that time when that wasn't necessarily something where she could control that narrative, she still found a way to take it in stride um, in a way that, you know, I don't know that today's athletes are are quite as skilled in that. Um, and so I think it also speaks a lot to that sport, that athlete in that era. And to your point, Chelsea, I think that, you know, you kind of brought this up a little bit in that Tiger Woods was one of the first um I think maybe Michael Jordan was probably on the forefront of this, of this idea of brand management, Mm -hmm. right? That you're not just an athlete, that you are an entire brand and that you, um, which is really an enormous responsibility as an athlete that you got, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars that a corporation is willing to invest in you and because they want you to be the face of that corporation. And when you have a Britney Spears moment, um, that, you know, can really impact forces that are much greater than you as an athlete. You know, it's interesting, uh, listening to this and thinking about gymnasts being, um, you know, essentially kids and having the weight of the world on their shoulders. And, you know, we all know the brain development it takes to 25 years for most of us, but some of us never actually get fully developed brain. Um, the, I think the the thing that strikes me is like if these people and these athletes are great in one area, you know, how do they manage and how do they actually cope with being not great in so many other areas? Because it's like um, it's like a an abnormal development in one area of life and and nearly abject failure and neglect in some other areas of life for elite athletes. I'm curious what our panelists think of of those thoughts. I think that's why I do what I do. That's why I'm a clinical sports psychologist that 
um, in terms of whole person development, you know, we know that when you specialize really early in sport, there's some emotional stunting in terms of when you started to really come into your own. And some of that psychosocial development can take a little bit longer because we've invested into this one specific area of our identity and personhood. Um, and so while I get really excited when I help my athletes perform better, I'm way more excited when I, when I can help them develop as a human, uh, because there is so much more energy and time and money put into this stuff that's in the spotlight, this performance, this money-making piece that, um, you know, my passion lies in that, that kind of more hidden space, because I, I think that, Historically, we've done an awful job at that, that we used athletes for what they could give us on the field, court, whatever. Um, and now we're really starting to see greater investment in that stuff. But, you know, that's the piece that drives me on a day to day basis because it, it, it matters so much. And we've seen athletes crash and burn because they haven't had that piece because it has just been about this sport and they've excelled and they're phenomenal. And then you pull back the curtain and it's like, holy shit, this person's kind of a mess. Um, and everyone is just closing their eyes to it because we got to push, push, push them in terms of performing. And I think it's interesting when you think about, you know, Gymnasts are actually some of the athletes who typically have um, the highest grade point averages um, when you look at, uh, you know, collegiate athletes um, or even high school athletes, that they tend to be for perfectionists in multiple areas of their life, um, which then, you know, to what Chelsea was saying can be a really double-edged sword that, you know, you are only going to choose things that you think you can be perfect at, or there's this dichotomy of like, you are perfect or you are a failure. Um, and I think that's where, you know, for some of these more aesthetic sports where it's not just about the performance, it's also about appearance um, that you have to appear to be looking good at the same time. Um, and one of the things that I think about uh, with this particular um, moment is that it started to shatter this idea of like the pixie gymnast that everybody thought they were all oh, these cute little girls and look how adorable they are because they're tiny um that you know these are athletes with nerves of steel and and i think it did a lot for our perceptions of what we think a gymnast is um but i think that a lot of people who are perfectionists generally, right. That they really struggle with like just being okay at something is like not a thing. Is everybody on this podcast a sports psychologist except for me? And I survived. Let's bring, let's bring Todd in here. Cause Todd, you've coached as well, haven't you? As well as being a player, you've coached um, like some uh, uh, junior basketball. And, um, you know, we were talking before about, I guess kids trying to excel at something and perhaps not neglecting, but kind of finding that balance between what they're doing as an athlete and what they're doing in, um, in their kind of lives as well. And me and you've had conversations before about, you know, that, that real pull that some of those kids have towards their, you know, their lives. And, you know, as a coach, you're trying to get them to concentrate on their sport. Like, how, how does that work for you as a coach? What kind of things have you seen? Yeah, it was, it's, those are all what do you really do? good points. And I was thinking about some of that uh, when when Chelsea was talking because I was a I was a college athlete in in the states and and there you know the the program was definitely not Ohio the Ohio State University. Um, it was it was a much smaller 
program, but still it's about your perspective and it's about so what, what you think you want to be successful and what you want to bring to the table and how you don't want to accept just because you're at that school doesn't mean that you can't be successful and that you can't win and that you can't, um, you know, be, be a good player and, and develop yourself as well. Well, and William and Mary is full of overachievers. Like you, you know, that particular school, I think is at least particularly academically, like you walk on that campus and it's, you can feel your stress level, like rise the second you step onto William and Mary's campus. Oh yeah. I, I barely got out. Let's put it that way. Um, but with regards to, to coaching, I think, the difference is that I coach a sport in a country that doesn't lend a lot of weight to that particular sport. So the difference between coaching basketball in America, where basketball is a sport that's valued, uh, a sport that uh, gets a lot of notoriety and a lot of people are interested in, Whereas in the UK, it's the exact opposite. Everyone's interested in football. So it's, it's a complete sort of topsy-turvy world of where um, you're, you're trying to coach kids with no knowledge base of a sport. You're trying to coach kids whose parents have no knowledge base of a sport. And so many kids who, uh, who play the basketball and who I coached, their parents thought they were going to be professional basketball players when they were 14. Uh, how in the world did you possibly think that was going to happen? Like that, that's just not going to happen. The odds are astronomical, but they don't have the perspective. They don't have, they don't have the understanding, you know, their kid plays in a game and they win the, the game 140 to 36 and they all, oh, my kid's really good. They're going to be a professional player. That it just doesn't work that way. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, Pete, but I think there's some genuine challenges around coaching uh, athletes in a, in a sport that is not a, like a prominent sport with a big knowledge base and also with a lot of exposure to, to that kids can get. So, mm-hmm. I mean, growing up, I could watch basketball every single night if I wanted to here. It's just not possible. Yeah. I mean, I guess we've been talking about kind of what makes athletes mentally great. And there'll be a lot of coaches listening to this who are in the same situation as you, where they're trying to coach athletes who've got a lot of other things going on in their life. And it's trying to maintain that balance between, okay, well, how do we help these athletes become mentally great whilst also not kind of forcing them to narrow themselves into just being an athlete? You know, how do we kind of encourage them to to have lives outside of sport, but also you know, make them kind of mentally great athletes or help them develop into mentally great athletes? Well, the challenge is, is huge when it comes to club sport. So you, you're, you're actually coaching in a, in a sport and and most of the sports in this country at lower levels are club sports where a child and or their parents are paying to, to play that particular sport. Whereas in in America growing up, there's a real difference there. If you are on that team, that that coach has the capability to determine your playing time. That coach has the capability to uh, look and see how hard you're working, how you're fitting into the system, and determine how much you're going to play. And also decide if they want to develop you, if you're worth developing or not. Just let you sit on the end of the bench and and maybe never play for four years, which happens to a lot of athletes. So, so w- when it comes to coaching in in clubs. 
it's it's a it's a it was really hard for me as somebody who's very competitive and for somebody who invested a lot into uh, becoming good at my sport seeing players who don't want to do the same and that that for me as a coach was as you know Pete because we had a lot of conversations <laughs> about this it, it's yeah. really really hard to coach uh, athletes and play, players in any in any sport who who don't want to be good but who just want to play and expect to be good yeah I think part of it also is is helping which I don't know that at, at least especially in youth sport but I think we can do a much better job of it um, at elite sport is coaches showing their athletes that they have value outside of their accomplishments. And that I was actually listening to a conversation with um, a podcast with Adam Grant, um, who's an organizational psychologist and talking about how there are so many athletes on sports teams where their the contribution that they make to the team does not have any stats you can track, right? That whether it's their leadership ability or their ability to be the assistant, you know, and, and place other athletes in the position that they need to be in. Um, and to recognize those athletes for the value that they bring um, to the team. So, it, you, and I kind of think about this, you know, who came to be known as the Magnificent Seven, um, that the captain of the team was actually Amanda Borden and unanimously voted for by the team even though she was maybe one of the weakest gymnasts on that team, but that her value was her leadership and her ability to be there for her teammates, which is not something that you can like, you know, you can't look at how many wobbles she had on beam or how many bonus tenths she had on floor, but that she was on that team for a reason. That, it's interesting that you talk about uh, these additional characteristics that we can't measure and, and quantify later. Uh, and it's just struck the question in my head is like, we've got these athletes who are the greatest of all time and they're developed in that peak, but that peak's only, and I hate it, I'm going to use it, but that peak's only there because there's a wide base of other elements and things supporting that. Uh, and Todd, I'm especially curious about your view from a coaching background here. What are these, you know, things that need to be in place to allow people to reach that peak of the greatest of all time? Um, is, is there specific characteristics that you think are important? Yeah, I think if you look into the background of successful athletes and also potentially when things start to break down for them is when they don't have that support system in place. So you 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 hear a lot about sort of team federer team fed and i mean just just specifically with him when i was doing research and looking into the 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 way that he kind of conducts himself is is very much he is an individual athlete but off the court there is a team of people around him that he's built that that helps him to be successful and just just recently watching the the Michael Jordan documentary as well. You saw a, a very small team of people that he kept around him that that really uh, enabled him in his mind to to be safe, uh, to to be to be who he was, to be himself, uh, to be unjudged, uh, and then to be able to sort of also, um, I, I guess, I guess not he not treat 
people the way he wanted to, but he was always able to come back into that bubble, uh, which is another word that's being overused at the moment with regards to the pandemic, uh, and and be and be safe and secure and supported. Yeah, and that wasn't coaches and other players either, yeah. was it? That was kind of his security team and close friends, and doesn't necessarily have to be kind of sport related. It's having that 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 social support and that close knit network that you can rely on and, and talk about things that just aren't sport. And it is interesting when you look at some individual athletes who shift from when they are a club athlete to a college athlete, like uh, gymnasts, like wrestlers, like golfers, where they are individual sports. And now they're in an individual sport where their team, where they also are contributing to an overall team score. And it's a real shift for them that now, and it's, it's less of like, oh, here are people who can support me. It's, oh, people are relying on me and, and having them help make that shift, right? Where it's this over sense of um, responsibility that, um, and I think you see this also with like soccer goal or football goalies and um, hockey goalies where they're like, everything is up to them, you know, or um, by the time, you know, if a goal is scored, it's their fault. You know, it's like, well, you had to get through a whole bunch of other people for like, <laughs> you know, or, you know, pitchers, you know, softball pitchers, baseball pitchers, that they think everything, you know, rests on them because they're the most visible. Um, when they have all these other people on the field, you know, to be there for them. And I think for some athletes, that's really difficult to let go of and to, like you said, feel safe and feel vulnerable and feel um, that, you know, if I make an error, I have people who are going to, back me up you you were gonna were you gonna say something yeah I'm, I'm curious chelsea i mean what are your views on these foundational things we've got support support networks from todd and leah uh and teamship like surely there must be more than that yeah you know i think that we're really starting to see a shift at least in the u.s and i think i think worldwide um of trying to help athletes to create that, to create that. And, and I hate to use the phrase safe space, but you know, that when you look at universities here that we have now, you know, mental health professionals, performance enhancement professionals, sports dietitian, uh, we have academic support, we have professional career support specifically for them. We have, um, kinesiologists and sports scientists and we have the coaches and we we're starting to teach them early that you have to have all of these different components you know we have student athlete led groups so on social justice on diversity topics where they were were teaching them to create these additional supports for areas where they they think they need it um, and we're starting to see that really start to take off in the professional ranks now i think college paved the way we're seeing professional organizations here in the states at least all also start to build a staff that can mirror that while encouraging them to have that outside of a facility as well, but starting to model that because I do think that you have to have that stuff in place. Now, the flip side of that is, and I, I talked um, with a colleague of mine at one of the military academies who works with the, the student athletes there, there is a trade-off. At some point, we have to recognize that if you put 100% effort into developing the person, 
you may risk some of that peak performance. And if you put 100% effort into peak performance, you may risk some of that personhood development. And so we also have to teach our athletes to make educated decisions on where that is, because it probably isn't possible to invest 100% into both of them because that's not how percentages work. Um, but, you know, thinking about there, there's a little bit of a trade-off. Something has to give a little bit. Um, and that's, that can feel like an icky area of, okay, what is that, that space? An example being when I'm working with an athlete with a trauma history, you know, I'm not going to start unpacking that trauma history in championship season. Because we don't want to threaten their ability to perform during championship season. It doesn't mean we're never going to address it. But it means that that has to give right now if we want them to perform at an elite level during a really important time. And so we might table that issue. So, you know, it's it's thinking about that, that we need this holistic perspective. But when we're talking about working with athletes, we also have to do it in a really strategic way, knowing that we can't have all things all the time, um, which applies to non-athletes in our, our lives as well. But it's it's just particularly highlighted with this group. And I think also to your point, Chelsea, we talked about, you talked a little bit about like that whole personhood um, and, you know, thinking about, um, you know, this is pride month and that there are athletes who may or may not be closeted, um, you know, LGBTQIA athletes. And what I find to be so interesting is that when athletes do come out, um, and are able to self-identify and have the space to do that, their performance improves because they're not spending the emotional energy, right, which we've talked about already, on what are my, what are my teammates going to think of me? How do I ha- I mean, it takes so much effort to not be who you are. And so when I think about, you know, creating those spaces for those athletes and creating that environment, um, whether whatever your team looks like, whether it's a basketball team or whether you're an individual athlete who has a team of professionals around you, whether your coaching staff is. And this is why I think it's so important um, in this month of June to recognize those athletes, um, you know, for whom there are still spaces where you're not safe and that they think that they that there is this dichotomy that you can either be LGBTQ or you can be an athlete and we can look at any number of organizations in the United States that perpetuate that belief. Um, and, but when you look at people like Gus Kenworthy or Adam Rapon, or you look at any of the, um, you know, Chris Mosier, you know, out trans athlete that, um, that they are actually better athletes now than they were before. I suppose really what what you're saying there, Leah, is that if an athlete's got multiple identities and and those identities aren't allowed out uh, and they're only allowed their athlete identity, that's an additional stressor and it's going to chip away at performance. But at the same time, uh, Chelsea, you know, you're talking about how uh, we actually can't disrupt performance because it's a fragile creation and, you know, unpacking trauma and dealing with something that's maybe a clinical issue is going to disrupt performance. So there's really, there's a big soupy mess of, of decision-making in there and how performance is created, maintained and sustained. Uh, Pete, I'm really curious. You've been quiet throughout a lot of this podcast and you, you've been <laughs> sitting there taking it all in and, and asking questions, but I know you've got some thoughts here and I'd love to hear them. What in particular about this kind of whole soupy mess? And Yeah, like, talk to me about the soup. About the soup. I, I kind of agree 
with Leah's point, I guess it's it's so important for athletes to be able to express all parts of their of their identity to have those multiple identities and to be safe in expressing those identities as well. And I guess as an uh, as a coach, because I've done some coaching as well, and as a sports psychologist, one of the things that I kind of always try and start by doing is to explore what else the athlete has got going on. What else are they doing in their lives? Are they taking care of those other things too? Because if they're not, well, then we know that that has a, a, an impact on performance. That can be holding them back. So I, I, I think it's an interesting point that Chelsea made about kind of tabling some of those discussions. But it's certainly, for me anyway, kind of one of the fundamental elements of being a sports psychologist is to talk to the whole athlete and to explore what else they're doing you know what what else is important to you do you enjoy music are you satisfying that element of your life uh how's everything going with your family are you satisfying those kind of familial relationships as well you know what what bits are missing and what bits are you taking care of because if the bits that you're not taking care of that aren't necessarily to do with sport then you know that's gonna that's gonna be an issue at some point I think I've been doing a lot of talks for coaches. And one of the big things I think that's really important with coaches is, you know, I can do all the work on the back end and we can make an educated decision about when to talk about that intensely traumatic event. And maybe it's four weeks down the road, right? But it's a strategic decision. And I think something that I'm really encouraging coaches to do is to get to know these athletes. I know them intimately because they've decided to come share their lives with me. But the thing that's most impactful is when coaches coaches know what music they like. I want to know what the music they like, but like, that's in a whole different realm of what we're doing. And I think that from that coaching perspective, you know, coaches that invest in their athletes, what are you reading? What are you watching? You know, and, and saying you matter as a person. I think that's the big disconnect. I think as professionals, they know we care about them. That's our identified role. Mm -hmm. And where coaches can have such a huge impact um, is that it are those little things that it's not just you're here to work hard for me, although you are here to work hard for me. I care about you as a person that a coach saying, oh, I saw you brought a book. What book are you reading? That's a game changer sometimes for for some of these kids or, hey, how's your mom doing and naming your mom by name? And these kids are like, oh, this coach actually heard me. Um, I worked with an athlete once who said to me, we got a new coach last year and he doesn't know my mom's name. Like it was a basketball team. It's a team of very few people. And so just feeling like the coaches invest, you know, I think it, it can be hard when they just see us doing it because that's our job. But when these coaches and support people actually invest in them as humans, and, and that's where the safety comes from. The safety doesn't come from me allowing them to talk about all their identities. That's still behind a closed door most of the time. It's by that team. It's by that uh, coaching staff saying, you as a person are welcome here. I think that's where the impact comes, right? Like from those people and that group, I mean, that's really the high impact stuff that I'm always trying to to have coaches see. And I think our new generation of some of the younger coaches are embracing that tremendously. Um, you know, who's that really good at that is Andy Reid in the Kansas City Chiefs, mm -hmm. is that every in his um, exit interviews, um, that he always asks asks about, um, like he had a, a his an off offensive lineman, defensive lineman who's a physician and was in med school while he was playing in the NFL. And it, every exit interview was like, "How are your studies going? How's school? How?" And it wasn't about football. And you know, I mean, in, I think Andy Reid's coaching uh, record speaks for itself. Yeah, and we're really lucky here at Ohio State, Ryan Day 
is this incredible, incredible human who cares about loving each other, caring about each other, investing, him and his wife invest in, in youth mental health uh, issues and resources. And I mean, it's a game changer for the culture. And so, you know, many of our athletes in football, American football, which is not a common place, similar to Andy Reid, like it's not a common place to let those guards down and create that safety. It's just incredible to see. You know, those are great points, uh, Chelsea and Leah, about creating humanity for the athlete and allowing the athlete to be seen as a human from knowing their mom's name to uh, whatever else. Todd, I mean, you're a coach and you've been a professional athlete. I'm sure both there's there's things that you've done that have created that uh, for athletes, but also the, there's things that maybe coaches have done uh, for you or to you that have uh, facilitated that or actually taken away from that. Have you any experience or thoughts in those areas? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Two days. Yeah, I mean, the, they were, didn't get on very well with my college coach at all. He didn't do any of the things that Chelsea's talking about. He didn't really understand uh, what, what any of us did or what we you know just just showing up to practice didn't really invest a lot of time into finding out about the the players anything outside of you know walking in the gym and then and then walking out again really uh, we had more contact with probably people like Chelsea like support uh, people sports psychologists people who were athlete support uh, for the for the athletics department uh, who who made who made the effort to, to care and and made the effort to get to know us more uh, as athletes. So that that was that was important. It was it was beyond my wildest expectations that I was going to be playing professional basketball in Europe. I just that that didn't even really occur to me until my senior year. So so the the, the I didn't get that that same experience as I moved into the professional basketball ranks. You you have a mixed bag of coaches. Uh, I guess when you when you're when your coach is American and you're American and you're in a European city together, you probably get to know them a lot better than you would otherwise. So I think playing professionally, there were some coaches I had where I I, w- I was on a uh, a more personal level with them and they knew more about me personally and we were able to connect better. Whereas others, it was more like they were a coach that was their job. I was a player that was my job. It doesn't mean to say that those teams weren't successful. They were just they were just gone about things in a different way. And I think to bring it behind back to this idea of mental toughness, right, is that I think we're starting to, like Chelsea said, there's starting to be a shift into what mental toughness is and how um, that for a long time, I think that a lot of coaches believed that you had to show up, leave everything at the door, bring nothing with you onto the court, and that's what made you mentally tough. And now we're starting to see that like having that emotional agility and that emotional intelligence actually contributes to your ability to be mentally tough. And that looking at athletes, not as commodities, especially, you know, in that those professional ranks, you know, that, that I've seen as well, where athletes get traded and, you know, I think I left practice one day and I came back and we had four new athletes. (laughs) It was like, oh, I ha- half of my team is new. At that professional level, I think that can be really difficult, I think, for some coaches 
not that it can't happen. Like we mentioned, uh, Andy Reid, uh, Coach Kerr, uh, Golden State, like that there are absolutely these coaches who can make it happen, but they're, they're seen, I think, whereas before, I think they were seen as sort of this like touchy feely anomaly that, that people are starting to look to those coaching models as like, oh, these are wildly successful coaches. Maybe there's something to treating our athletes like human beings. It's so weird that uh, when we value them, that they are actually more tough instead of less. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe for more of the same. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a few seconds just to drop us a nice review as well. So I think that's probably about all we've got time for for this episode. Unless, Hugh, have you got anything else you want to say? Uh, no, no, I'm good. Um, I, I, to be honest, guys, th that's class. Thank you very much. That I'm blown away. The, the quality of replies is class. And the breadth of experience we have is just amazing. So I'd be excited to listen to this, um, let alone be part of it. So, yeah, thank you very much, guys. This was super, super fun. Yeah, yes, I really great. enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. <laughs> Miss those American accents. <laughs> so in this episode and going back to episode three, we've tried to identify athletes who are mental goats. That is, which athletes, mentally speaking, are some of the greatest of all time. And we've heard some great stories about some great athletes, but I think more than that, we've explored what being mentally great really means. And it's more than just toughness, although that's perhaps a part of it. But I think we have ideas about what mental toughness is. I'm not a huge fan of the phrase. I think it conjures up images of pushing through pain, not showing emotion, almost like a, a, a hyper-masculine idea of what sport should be about. I think mental strength involves being flexible, that emotional agility that Chelsea talked about, being coachable and showing that vulnerability, admitting when you need help, understanding that there's always things to work on and allowing yourself to feel those normal emotions like anxiety, like self-doubt, like sadness, and, and being brave enough to continue to compete or to train with those emotions rather than trying to shut them off because we feel like we shouldn't have them if we're, if we're mentally tough. So we've discussed a lot of different traits and a lot of different attributes today. Maybe if you're an athlete, look out for some of those traits in yourself. You know, what are your mental strengths? What are the things that you feel that you could work on? The discussion took a bit of a turn in the second half, uh, and, and we heard some fantastic insights into the conditions needed to try and really cultivate that that mental greatness. So if you're a coach or, or somebody who works with athletes, or if you're a psychologist who, who's working with the coach, what might you do to create an environment or, or to, to help develop an environment that might foster mental growth in some of those different areas? So I just want to thank each of our guests again for today. So thank you, Todd Cawthorn. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you, Leah. Thanks. I won. <laughs> no, you did win. I actually <laughs> completely forgot about that part. Um, I totally made up the scores, by the way. So, you know, no one really won. Um, thank you, Chelsea. Oh, I no, I definitely, I definitely won. 
you can take that away with you. Thank you, Chelsea. It was my pleasure. And obviously, thank you once uh, again to Hugh and his fantastic representation of Eric Cantona, um, who, like I say, I think probably should have won. I, I think Hugh only found out who Eric Cantona was maybe this morning. Possibly, yeah. Uh, he, he is French, isn't he? he? He is French, yeah. Pete, who's your goat? I can't believe he didn't pick George Best. Being being from where you are, to be honest with you. George Best? He was Irish. Yeah, he's Irish, right? Yeah, I'm not Irish. I meant Hugh. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> I was tempted to pick George Best, um, but I kind of thought like, yeah, I think Eric just did it a lot more better. George was just very good in one one single domain, but didn't have the rest of his domains in, in, in life in order. Was Eric at least, you know, got away with assault? Um but he was charged. He didn't get away with it. At yeah, exactly. Got he got it. away with nothing. <laughs> there was video. I would also like to say that Zach Morris wore his gray hoodie for you, Pete. Oh. Uh, if you, Zach Morris oh. is uh, Leah's dog. So my, my, my goat, yeah, my goat would have been, would have been MJ. Uh, Michael Jordan, not Michael Jackson. That's a whole different thing. Um <laughs> We won't get into that. Yeah, Michael Jordan. And again, it speaks to kind of a lot of the things that we talked about today. Obviously, the coolness, you know, the difference between Michael Jordan and LeBron. You know, one of them is that Michael Jordan just admitted that his hairline was moving backwards and just shaved it off. You know, <laughs> you know self-awareness. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the longevity and that kind of determination, overcoming obstacles. I mean, you know, we can kind of talk about all of that stuff. We haven't really got time, but all of the things that we talked about today, I would apply to to Michael Jordan. You know, there's a debate and a discussion to be had about some of the other elements of these athletes' lives. You know, we didn't really get into that with with, with Tiger Woods, um, but we can we can talk about that stuff. Does that detract from their greatness mentally, um, or or does it not? And and maybe that's a, a discussion for another show. Um, but yeah thanks for thanks for listening uh if you enjoyed what you heard please do subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts check out all of our episodes at 80 percent mental which is all words.com and don't forget to send us your suggestions for who you think the mental goat is you can do that through the website or you can tweet us at epm podcast on twitter um so thanks once again to to all of our our guests and i will see you next time now again i won't see you because it's a podcast (laughs) 